Good morning there, Valley Bible Church. It's great to see you. Thank you for joining us here on our online services. We're excited to continue through the Gospel of John. We are right now in John chapter 8, and we're exploring who is Jesus? What does Jesus say about himself? Now, before we jump to our passage this morning, I want to ask you two questions. Two very simple questions. Questions you're going to be probably find very easy to answer. The two questions are this. First, do you worry? Second, should you worry? Do you worry? If I ask that question to myself, the answer is absolutely yes, I worry. Why do I worry? Because I have kids, and my kids, honestly, are crazy. They're crazy. I've seen these crazy kids take a plastic kiddie pool, climb it up to the top of a playground, board it like a bobsled, and try to slide it down the slide at a speed that would honestly qualify them for the Olympic Winter Games. I've seen my son fly through the air like a dolphin breaching out of the ocean because he hit a bump on his scooter. I've seen that same son climb a 10-foot ladder when nobody was looking before he could walk. Kids stress you out. Kids make you worry. And there are plenty of examples I could give you more than that, and I'm sure you could give too, of our kids doing things that just make us worry, that just tie our stomach in knots. But we all worry. And one of the reasons I think we worry is because we're trying to prepare ourselves for the worst. It's like a natural defense mechanism. We think if we worry now, we'll be better prepared for if the worst thing happens. I just recently ran into a study that proved that was not true. Actually, worrying about the worst thing happening doesn't prepare you when the worst thing actually happens. What actually happens when you worry about the worst thing is that you rob yourself of enjoying what's right in front of you. So do we worry? Absolutely we do. Should we worry? Well, Jesus tells us not to be anxious about tomorrow. So no, no, we should not worry. But yes, yes, we should worry. Now, most of the worrying we do, we should not do. Most of the worrying we do is not healthy. Most of the worrying we do, Jesus would instruct us not to do that, command us not to do that. But in our passage today, we're going to see Jesus, I think, tell us that we need to worry about something. At least one thing. We need to be deeply concerned. Deeply concerned about the worst thing. This is the one thing we need to worry about. And this passage is going to be difficult. I'm not going to lie, it's going to be hard to walk through. I'm sure it was hard for Jesus' first century hearers to listen to. And I think you're going to find it's hard for you to listen to. And I'll be honest, it's going to be hard for me to share it with you. But I share it with you with the same concern that Jesus shared it to his first century hearers. And that is, we must worry about the worst thing because we need to avoid it. There is a way to avoid it. And in avoiding it, we can enjoy the best thing. Let me show you this. In John chapter 8, we're going to start at verse 21. John chapter 8, starting with verse 21. And I want to kind of summarize the main idea, I think, of the section that we're going to cover. We call it our big idea. If you're familiar with Valley Bible Church and the messages that we give here, we like to kind of summarize our message in one 
big idea, something that helps you remember uh, the message as we're walking through it, but one that also you can kind of hold on to. We, we try to make it a little sticky. We try to make it catchy so you can hold on to this truth for at least a week until we give you the next big idea. So the big idea today, and I want you to write this down. If you're only going to write down one thing, please write this down. The big idea for this morning is this. We must worry about the worst thing. We must worry about the worst. Jesus is going to instruct us to worry, to be deeply concerned about the worst thing. He's going to tell us that there is a fate that is inevitable. There is a monster that we must all face, and we have to stare it right in the eyes, and we must come to grips with this severity of that fate that is before us, and we must seek to avoid it. And in avoiding it, we can enjoy the greatest thing. Let me show you this. John chapter 8, starting with verse 21. This is the worst. The worst thing. Look at Jesus in a very serious tone, delivers this to the religious leaders that he's been interacting with for a while now during the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 21 says this, So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus says, I am going away and you will seek me. Jesus is speaking about his ascension. Jesus' plan, what's going to unfold for us is that Jesus will die on the cross. He will rise again from the grave. He will be with his closest followers and some more, and then he will ascend back to the Father. And Jesus is speaking of that moment, his moment of ascension. He's saying, I am going to leave you. Now, Jesus said this to his own disciples. He will say this in John chapter 13. He'll say it to them, but he'll say it to them to kind of comfort them. To say, hey guys, this is going to come. I'm, I'm going to leave you. There's going to be a time where I go. And that time is coming very soon. But Jesus says this to comfort them. Look in, in John chapter 13. It says this in verse 33. He says, little children, yet a little while... I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, which is our passage today, so now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. But the tone in which Jesus delivers this news, I'm going to ascend, go back to the Father. He says it in a way to comfort his disciples because he's going to say to them, you're not going to be able to come with me yet. Look at how he continues the conversation in chapter 14. In verse 2, he says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. What is he saying there? Yes, I'm going to go. I'm going to leave. And you can't follow yet. You're going to have to wait. There's going to be a season. There's going to be a time. The church has been waiting. We've been Been waiting for almost 2,000 years for Christ to come back again to take us to be with him. But the words that Jesus delivers in Matthew chapter 8 are not words of comfort. Jesus is not trying to tell them, I'm going to send, I'm going to leave, but I'll come back for you. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus speaks of leaving, and then he says, and you're not going to come with me ever. 
He doesn't say not yet. He doesn't say wait. No, his words are much more severe than that. Now, Jesus said something similar to them in John chapter 7. If you look at John chapter 7, verse 33, look at Jesus say this to the Jews, the religious leaders. Before he says it to them in 8, he says it to them in 7. In verse 33, he says, Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer. And then I am going to him who sent me. And you will seek me. And you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. What is Jesus saying there? I'm going to leave and you're going to still look. You're still going to look, but you're not going to find. What Jesus is talking about there is you're going to look for the Messiah. You're going to look for the Old Testament hero. You're going to look for the one that's been promised for for hundreds and thousands of years to come and bring God's blessing to God's people. To, to, To sacrifice himself for their sin. To liberate them from their bondage to sin. You've been waiting for this hero. And I'm the hero right here. But I'm going to leave and you're still going to look for the hero. But you'll never find the hero because I was the hero. So in John chapter 7, Jesus is saying, you're going to search and your search is going to be in vain. It's going to be futile. It's not going to work. It's going to fail. You're going to be looking for something that was right there in front of you. And you will not find it because you missed it. You missed it. I was the one you were waiting for, but you missed it. Now in John chapter 8, Jesus takes that to another level. He not only tells them, your searching is going to fail. You not believing in me and seeing who I am, not only is it going to fail, but let me tell you the dire consequences of your failed search. Look what Jesus brings up in John chapter 8, something he definitely does not say to his disciples, but something he says to the religious leaders who continue to push against Jesus. Again, verse 21 of John chapter 8. I'm going away and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. What is Jesus talking about here? This is the worst thing. This is the worst thing. He says you'll die in your sin. What does Jesus mean by this idea of death? Jesus doesn't mean a non-functioning heart. He doesn't mean an inactive brain. He says you will die in your sins. What does that mean? In fact, here it says you'll die in your sin. I think he's thinking specifically of their unbelief, their relation to Jesus, that they have rejected him. He said that that sin of unbelief really flourishes in to to all the other sins. It really kind of mushrooms out all the other sins. It starts with unbelief. And he's saying, in your unbelief, holding on and rejecting me and holding on to your unbelief is going to make you die. And what does he mean by death? I think the next phrase he says describes to us what he means by death. That phrase that he says is, where I am going, you cannot come. I think what Jesus is speaking about here is he's speaking about abandonment or banishment. You know, oftentimes when we think of the unpleasant afterlife, or what the Bible calls hell, we think of hell as a place of eternal suffering. We kind of think of it just only in those terms, in, the, in that theme of suffering. And that's very fair and that's biblically correct. And there are many pictures in the scriptures that describe hell and use those kind of terms, suffering. But the Bible also describes another dynamic of hell. And that is one of banishment. 
It's one of abandonment. It's one of eternal lostness. This is what Jesus is describing here. You will not be where I am. This is death. This is true death. Not your spirit leaving your body, but God leaving you out in the cold. Jesus said that in the future, in the end, he will say to some, I do not know you. Depart from me. I do not know you. Depart from me. Jesus is not speaking there that I am not aware of you. I am not conscious of you. I am ignorant of you. That's not what he's saying. The concept of know is the idea of relationship. I, we're not in relationship. I don't know you. We're not in community. We're not in relationship. There is no intimacy. Therefore, leave me. Now think about how devastating this is. I mean, we all as children probably knew what it was like to be lost once, right? Maybe you're in a grocery store and, and you lost your, your parents and then you kind of lost your bearings. You forgot what aisle you were on and you forgot where your parents were going, right? And there was that moment that you were just kind of sitting in the despair of loneliness, right? And, and you just panicked and you started crying. Some of us know the pain of being intentionally lost or abandoned. Some of us know the pain of our parents pushing off the responsibility to care for us, leaving us, forsaking us, kicking us to the curb. Now imagine that pain on an eternal scale. We all know we're created for community, for intimacy, for relationship. We're made to be interdependent, not independent. We're all painfully aware of that in the midst of this pandemic and all the stay-at-home orders to be socially distanced. We're social creatures. We're not meant to be distant from one another. But we were created for a much deeper intimacy than one we receive from people like us. One we receive from people. We're created to be intimate with our Creator. To have a relationship with our creator. To know that community. To know that love. And Jesus is saying, and I would argue maybe the worst theme, but what Jesus is bringing out here, and I think is one of the worst uh, 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 themes or, or kind of pictures of hell, is a sense of a, a eternal banishment. Eternal loneliness. Lack of community. Lack of intimacy. Always having within us this relational void that will never be fulfilled. We will never know our creator. The one we were designed to commune with. This is the worst thing. And this is what Jesus is warning about. You will die in your sins and you will be separated from your creator forever. That is the worst thing. But there's a way to avoid it. There's a way to avoid this thing we should worry about. Jesus doesn't just warn with no hope. He doesn't just make a judgment call. He doesn't just hit the gavel and give the verdict. No, he warns, severely warns. He tells them, you need to worry about this worst thing. This is coming. But there is a way out. There's a way to avoid this. Look how Jesus continues the conversations, the Religious leaders who have received this very stern warning from Jesus are a little disoriented. 
They don't understand what Jesus is saying. Look at, look at how they express kind of their, their disorientation. Verse 22. So the Jews, that's the religious leaders, said, will he, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. What are they talking about? Why, do they, why is their response uh, uh, suicide? Why, why are they thinking, wait, Jesus is going to commit suicide? It's because their thinking in the first century world in Judaism was that if one were to commit suicide, he would then be sentenced to the darkest place of death. And so their idea is that, well, if Jesus is going to commit you know, suicide, clearly that's what he's thinking about because he would go to the darkest place of death, a place where no one could ever find him, a place where he's completely alone. Now, Jesus does not support that idea. We should not support that idea. And Jesus is going to tell him, guys, you're way off. The problem is not that I'm going to a place that cannot be found. The problem is you don't believe and you cannot find the way to me. There are those who will get to me. There are those who will be with me. There are those who will know intimacy with their creator. There are those who will know community. There are those who will be in relationship with me. There are those who will come with me. But you won't because you hold on to your rebellion against God. You hold on to your animosity with God. You hold on to your sin. You hold on to your unbelief. Look at how Jesus just totally uh, disregards the idea of suicide and brings back their condition, their condition that they are fallen. They are in sin. They're in rebellion to God. And this is why they cannot find their way to God. They need to surrender that rebellion. Look at what Jesus says to them in response. Verse 23, he said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. See that contrast that Jesus is making here? What is Jesus saying? Jesus is not speaking about their humanity. When Jesus says below, when he says of the world, Jesus is not saying, well, you're human. Because Jesus describes himself as being from above and not of this world. But Jesus is human. He is the God-man. Fully God, fully man. He shares their same humanity. So Jesus is not talking about being a, 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 a human. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is being fallen, being sinful, being in rebellion, holding on to unbelief, pushing against God. He says, this is why This fate is coming for you. This is why you will die in your sin, because you will not see me for who I am. You keep rejecting me and pushing me away. Again, as severe as the language is, Jesus does give us a glimmer of hope. The idea that there is a possibility that this fate can be avoided and that the best thing can be enjoyed. That we don't have to be eternally separated from God. We don't have to be banished from the blessed presence of God. We don't have to be pushed aside forever alone, eternally in that aisle, wondering where our parents are, just in despair and loneliness forever. Now, Jesus has said there's going to be a way out, and you can actually enjoy the greatest thing, which is what? To be where I am. To have the same hope delivered to the disciples in John chapter 14. You can be with me. Look at Jesus. Extend this hope to them. Verse 25. Or sorry, verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sin. Again, Jesus presses forward the bad news. This is the worst thing. 
for you to die in your sin. But here's the hope. I told you that you would die in your sin, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sin. Again, it's the third time Jesus said that they're going to die in their sin. But look, sandwiched between those two very serious warnings of dying in their sin, He says, unless you believe. There is a way to avoid this death. There is a way to avoid the worst thing. And what is it? We must believe that I am He. Now look at those words there. If you have your Bible before you, or maybe on your phone, or maybe you're just looking at the screen. In verse 24, it's very interesting how it's worded. It says, for unless you believe that I am He. Strange. Right? Doesn't, doesn't it look odd? It, it looks kind of funny. Well, it's actually, it looks funny in the Greek as well, in the original language it was written in. I am he. It feels like it's missing something. If I were to tell you, I need you to believe that, that I am he, your probably response would be that you are what? Right? There's something missing there. It, there's like a a referent, are you pointing back to something? Are, 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 what are you trying to say? Some English translations have actually kind of taken the strategy of let, let's fill in the blank. Like we got to fill in the blank. Something belongs here. I am he is not really a complete thought. Maybe what Jesus is saying is I am the one I have been claiming to be. And I think that's close. But I don't think the best strategy is just to kind of fill in the blank. I don't think that's what Jesus was trying to do. I don't think that would, that's what John, the author who recorded Jesus' words, is trying to do. I think there's something very significant happening here in just the choice of words here. Believe that I am He. These words are very meaningful, they're chosen very seriously. And choice implies meaning. So what was meant by Jesus? What is meant by the writer of the Gospel of John? What is, what is John trying to show us here? I don't think the best strategy to understand this is, again, to fill in the blank, but rather is to, is to look back. Look back to the Old Testament. Now, now let, me, let me nerd out a little bit here, okay? We have to understand something, that, that the New Testament, if we take our Bible, and it's not a division in half, But if we take our Bible, it it divides in kind of two parts. Again, they're not equal pages, but there's two parts. There's the Old Testament and there's the New Testament. The Old Testament is everything before Jesus, and the New Testament is everything since the birth of Jesus Christ. So that's kind of how it divides. Now, these two parts, or testaments, were written in two different languages. Majority of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and the New Testament was written in Greek. Two very, very different languages. Very different languages. But something happened about two years before Jesus was born. Or sorry, 200 years. Over 200 years before Jesus was born. So over 200 years before the New Testament was written. That there were people who translated the Old Testament into Greek. The same language as the New Testament. And this is very significant because this Greek translation of the Old Testament became very, very popular. And in fact, a lot of Jesus' first century followers will quote the Greek translation of the Old Testament. We see it all throughout the New Testament when Jesus' first century followers are writing to churches in the first century. 
It was the very popular book. And the reason that's significant is because that Greek phrase that we translate, I am he, is a very common phrase in the prophet Isaiah. In the Greek translation of the prophet Isaiah, and this is what I think Jesus and John want us to look back to. Let me show you this. Let me just pick up a couple because there there are several occurrences in the prophet Isaiah of this exact phrase being used. And I think Jesus is using it very specifically because he wants to prove the same point that God was proving in Isaiah. In Isaiah 43, God is speaking to his people and look at how he speaks to them. Remember that phrase, I am he. This is verse 10 of Isaiah chapter 44. It says, you are my witness. God is speaking of Israel. God is kind of placing himself kind of in a courtroom and he's compiling all this evidence, showing them that he is the only God who can save, that there is really no other God. These idols that they worship are false, they're vain, they're futile, they're, they're, they're empty, they're nothing. They're non-existent and they have no power and no power to save. That's what God is showing Israel. I have the power to save. There's nobody else. And look at the language he uses to describe it. We pick it up in our English translations in verse 10. It says, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. You are my chosen servant whom I have chosen, or sorry, you are my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord. Besides me, there is no Savior. I declare and saved, and proclaimed. When there was no strange God among you, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. I am God. Verse 13, also, henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Verse 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions. For my own sake, I will not remember your sins. What is he saying? Over and over again, I am he. What is his statement there? I am the only true God. There is none beside me. I am the only one who can save you. The only one who can deliver you from your sins. Now think about the conversation that Jesus is having with these religious leaders. Jesus is telling them, you are going to die in your sin. The worst is going to happen to you. You will face an inevitable fate where you will be away from your creator forever. Totally alone, abandoned. The love you were created for, you will never know forever. Unless you believe that I am he. Unless you believe I am the only God who has the power to save. I think what John wants us to do is to look back all the way to Isaiah, the prophet. And I also think what's helpful for us is to look forward a little bit. To look forward further in John chapter 8 to verse 58, where Jesus uses the same exact phrase. Now in the English, it's translated a little different. It's translated I am, but it's the same exact Greek phrase. Look at verse 58. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Or we can say, I am he. It's the same exact Greek phrase. Now, what is Jesus saying there? 
Before Abraham was, I am. Now, if this is the first time you're reading that, you may think to yourself, well, big deal. He's just saying he's older than Abraham. Okay, it is a big deal because Abraham died about 2,000 years ago or lived 2,000 years before Jesus. So that would make Jesus significantly old. The Jews know exactly what Jesus is saying. The religious leaders know exactly what Jesus is saying. Look at their response, verse 58. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went away to the temple. Now imagine that. If Jesus was just saying his age, hey, I'm old, and then they pick up stones, I can't remember anybody asking somebody for an ID, and when they see their actual age, they decide, let me pick up a rock and throw it at a person. But clearly Jesus isn't just describing his age. Right? He's not being just ID'd and identified to be a certain age. No. What is Jesus saying here? He's making a, a, a statement that before my human existence, I existed. I existed before Abraham existed. They know exactly what he's saying. He's saying, I am pre-existent. Saying, I am before Abraham because I am eternal. I'm God. And that's why they pick up rocks to stone him. That's why he's considered a blasphemer. Jesus using this phrase for himself would be seen like that. It seemed like that in verse 58. For Jesus to kind of take this phrase that's applied to God in the prophet of Isaiah, Jesus essentially saying, I am the only God. I am God, and I'm the only one who has the power to say. Now, the Jews don't get it at first. Look at their response. They get it in verse 58, but they don't get it right away. Verse 25. And so they said to them, said to him, who are you? They know that Jesus is making a a significant statement of identity, but they don't pick up on it completely that Jesus is referring to himself as divine and he's referring to himself as the only one who could save them from their sin, keep them from the worst thing happening to them. They don't get it. Jesus, who are you? And then Jesus kind of gets, in his response, I would say, frustrated. And I think disappointed. I think he's frustrated because, again, he's warning them of the worst thing. He's hoping that they can't avoid it. He gives them a glimmer of hope and says, if you believe that I am he, there's a way out of this worst thing. And you can't enjoy the best thing. And they just don't get it. Look at Jesus' frustration. You could almost feel it in the words that he chooses. Verse 25. So they said to them, who are you? And Jesus said, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. Guys, this isn't new. I've been saying this. I mean, with great clarity in John chapter 5, which we've already walked through, Jesus said that he's the sent one of God. He said that he's the son of God. Jesus made it incredibly clear to them. But he's like, guys, this isn't new. This is what I've been communicating to you. And you keep missing it. You can feel the frustration on Jesus, the disappointment in his tone with these religious leaders. Jesus says in verse 26, I have much to say about you, much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. Jesus is saying, man, I have a lot more to say about you, but I don't want you to think that I say it out of my own authority. What does Jesus say? No, this is what the Father has told me to say. Guys, I've been saying the same thing from the beginning, and it's not just my voice. It's the voice of God the Father who sent me. Guys, you're missing it. And it's right there for you. I know in reading this passage, 
it just emotionally struck me in a way um, that I found surprising. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've read the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is actually one of my favorite books of the Bible. So I've read the Gospel of John probably more than I've read many of the other uh, books of the Bible. But even then, even being very familiar with what's coming next, I was so frustrated, disappointed, and just sad at this response. And inside, I just thought to myself, man, when are they going to get it? Like, when is it going to be so clear? What more could Jesus say? And Jesus will tell them, I'll tell you when it becomes clear. When it becomes clear that my intention is to save you from the worst thing. I'll tell you when it's going to become clear that I have the power to save you. I have the power to deliver you from your sin. And I have the power to deliver you from death. Jesus speaks of a culminating moment in which that revelation is incredibly clear. That Jesus loves and has the power to save. That he has the intention to redeem and he has the power to complete that plan. Look what Jesus says to them. Verse 28. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. What a full sentence there. Let's take it slowly. When you have lifted up the Son of Man. What is he talking about there? Jesus used that phrase, lift up, twice in the Gospel of John. And each time it's speaking about his crucifixion. The other two occurrences, Jesus does not say who is lifting him up. He just speaks about his death. He speaks about his crucifixion. This is the only time he says who is doing the crucifying. And look what he says. When You, when you have lifted up the Son of Man. What is he telling him? He's telling him, I know I will become a victim of your rage. You will kill me. Now, this is their plan. This is revealed to us in uh, John chapter 7, verse 1. We know that they're plotting to kill Jesus. Jesus knows this. And he says, you'll succeed. You'll kill me. You will lift up the Son of Man. You think that would be the moment of greatest defeat. You think that would be the moment where they would conquer Jesus. You think that would be the moment they finally got rid of this pest. This one who's disrupting the power structure that they hold on so dearly. The one who's kind of disrupting their understanding of what God wants from them. They want power. They want a a kingdom. They want a, a, a Messiah who would come and vanquish their enemies and give them political power. And Jesus is talking about dying. Jesus is talking about suffering. Jesus is talking about serving. Jesus is talking about laying down his life. This is not the conquering king they want. They won't want a pitiful, sacrificial lamb. They don't want that. And Jesus says, you know the moment when I will display my power? It's when you kill me. What an odd phrase. What an odd idea. Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then, then you will know, know what? That I am He. That's that loaded phrase that we talked about. That I am He, that I'm the only one who has the power to save. You will know that I am He, and I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. 
and he who sent me is with me, and he has not with me or not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. You will see that the Father will testify and validate who I am when you try to kill me. It makes sense. How will Jesus make his love known? His intention to save known? How will he display his power? He will die and rise again. He will die as a sacrificial lamb for our sins. He will die taking on the penalty of our sin. The consequence of our free choices will fall on him. Our criminal actions will fall on him. Our grievances before God will fall on him. They will crush him, yet he will defeat them and he will show us that he has the power to release us from the consequence of sin and death by rising again from the grave. And this is when his power and his love will be on full display. Now what's that response? And I want to be hopeful. I want to be hopeful that they're going to avoid the worst thing. That Jesus told them, worry about this worst thing. You need to avoid it. Avoid it through me so you can enjoy the best thing, which is being with me forever. I want to believe that they're going to see this, know it. It's going to be revealed to them and they'll embrace it. And there's some hints that that's true. This idea of knowing in the Gospel of John that you will know that I am he. That idea of knowing when it's related to Jesus is always in a positive note. We look, the passage ends in verse 30. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So I want to be hopeful. It looks like, hey, this is going to work. Once they see that Jesus dies and rise again, clearly, clearly, then they'll know and they'll bow to him. They'll accept him as Savior. That's when they'll know. Look, some believe. And I wanted that, I wanted that just to be the end of it all when I was reading this passage. But I was skeptical. Why? Because I'm a familiar reader of the Gospel of John, and I know what's coming next. And even though our passage ends with the idea that many believe, Jesus will speak to these people who believe in the rest of John chapter 8, and he will be very skeptical of the integrity of their belief, the truthfulness of their belief. We see this many times in the Gospel of John, that John mentions belief, and then it turns out not to be true belief, and we're left disappointed. We know that from this moment on, things are going to get even more severe. The tensions only can become greater. The conflict is only become more intense between Jesus and the religious leaders. We know from the book of Acts that that the religious leaders are going to be the primary opponents to kind of squelch this idea and these reports of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the outlook outlook isn't good. But it's hard to understand, then, then, then what is this idea of knowing then? It says they'll know. When they lift up the Son of Man, then they'll know that I am He. This is going to be hard to stomach. But the reason we would read that passage, well, they'll know, so then clearly, they'll know that Jesus has the power to save. They'll know that he's God. 
then clearly they'll follow him. Now take that idea, because there's an idea before that idea that makes us read this passage like that. There's a presupposition there, and that is this. The only reason sin is there because of ignorance. The only reason sin happens is because of ignorance. And when you're in the know, then you'll make the right choice. And the only cause, the only impulse, the only catalyst to sin is ignorance. So therefore, the solution is you just need to know more. If you just knew what was happening, if you just knew who he is. Oh, and I wish that were true. I wish that were true. But I think you and I know that's not true. The reasons for my sin are never, or hardly ever, because of ignorance. I know what I'm doing is wrong. And I know who I'm hurting when I do it. You can't read the Bible and think that ignorance is the only problem. Rebellion is the problem. There are countless times in the Scriptures that the more and more God reveals, the more and more God shows up, the more and more God makes himself known, the more the rebellion gets fierce. With every plague delivered at the feet of Pharaoh, every time God flexed his power, showing the futility of what Pharaoh was doing, every time God unleashed a plague, what happened? His heart got harder. His rebellion became more and more and more powerful. So too, we see this in the Gospels. The clearer Jesus is about his divinity, the clearer Jesus is about his identity, the more the resistance gets stronger. We're not just ignorant. We're not just lacking knowledge. We're rebels. Lacking affection and allegiance to our creator and our king. And I think what Jesus is saying here is not that they'll see the cross as a sign of their hope, but the cross will be a sign of their guilt. They'll know what they have done. They'll know that they've crucified the God-man. They'll know that this is the ultimate act of rebellion. They'll strike at the one that they hate. And they'll be guilty for it. We must worry about the worst thing. There is a fate, an inevitable fate that we all will face. There is a monster that is in all of our futures. And he is big and he is scary. And we must look him in the eye. We must come to grips with the severity of the danger before us. And we must seek to avoid it. And there is a way to avoid it. And there's only one way to avoid it. And that's belief in the cross work of Jesus Christ. And there's only one way to permanently seal our fate that that monster will consume us, and that is to reject the Son of God as if we were trying to kill Him, crucify Him again, seeking to destroy Him. It is rejection of the cross that is the only thing that truly seals our fate and guarantees that the worst thing will happen to us.
But again, that's not what Jesus wants. Jesus came. That none would perish. That all would have eternal life. He wants us to believe in Him as the only one who can save. We must worry about the worst things so we can avoid it and we can enjoy the best thing. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us this week? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I think this passage encourages you. And here's what I mean by that. What I mean by that is this. If the worst thing can be avoided, if the worst thing is not going to happen, then what is there to worry about? Let's take that a little bit further. If the worst thing is not going to happen because we believe that Jesus is the only one who can save, if the worst thing is not going to happen and the best thing is going to happen, that we will be with Jesus forever, then what is there really left to worry about? When forever is taken care of, doesn't now look a whole lot different? What is there really left to worry about? Now, 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 please, I want to say this with great sensitivity. I hope you don't hear that and think, Paul, you're diminishing the devastating nature of what we go through. Paul, you're diminishing the pain we go through. You're diminishing the loss we go through. You're diminishing the sadness we go through. You're diminishing the heartbreak we go through. No, I'm not trying to do that. I'm not trying to diminish the, the devastation that we face. What I'm trying to do is elevate the eternal. In fact, in my experience, the only way to overcome the horrors of now is to hold on to the hope of the wonders of the next. The only way, the only way to survive the horrors of now, the horrors of this life, is to hold on to the hope of the wonders of the next. I know my kids oftentimes, they, they, they get caught up in the conflict of a, a, a story that we're reading or a movie that we're watching. And they'll look to me and they'll say, Daddy, what's going to happen? Daddy, how is this going to end? And there are times I tell them, guys, don't worry, just watch. And sometimes if, if I really feel the conflict is really deep for them and they're just kind of in, in this anxious knot, I'll, I'll tell them the ending so they can get through the middle. So they can get through the conflict. And this is exactly what God has done for us. God has told us, let me tell you how the story ends. Let me tell you what the future holds. Let me tell you what forever is. You will be with me forever. And that helps us get through the middle. It helps us get through the pain of now. And the pain of now hurts so bad. I know many close friends suffering deep pain right now. Deep pain. Pain I've never known. I got news right before I even came here of a friend going through great heartache. And I don't mean to diminish that experience. But I think the only way to get through it is to see the future promised to us by God the best thing will happen to us and the worst thing won't happen to us. My encouragement to you today, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you are in a season of pain, 
I ask you to pray a very simple prayer. This week, find yourself just as a a time of quiet and just pray something very simple. Just say, Father, I'm in pain. Father, I'm in pain. Father, I'm hurting. Father, I feel alone. Father, I'm in despair. Father, depression has taken over. Father, help me, help me see, help me feel the future. Help me know the concrete reality that lies in front of me. Help me feel the certainty of what is next. Supernaturally invade my heart with the hope of the future. I'm in pain now. Help me feel the future that you have for me. I think God can do that, and I think he's the only one that can help us in the pain of our present. That a prayer like that is the only way that you can have peace in pain. Now, maybe you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, and I want to say right up front, thank you. Thank you for walking through a very difficult and hard passage. passage. There are scriptures that are very difficult to walk through, and I think this is one of them. And I just want to applaud you. If this is your first time with us or you're just curious about Jesus or you're looking into church, I want to applaud you that you've made it this far. I really do. And I want to encourage you with this thought. Worry. Worry about the worst. Worry about this one thing. This is what I think Jesus would press to the forefront of your mind with a sense of urgency. We feel the urgency in the passage. You even feel the frustration of Jesus in the passage. The resistance he feels from those he's speaking to. And I want to tell you that many times in our life, we try to push off spiritual conversations. We try to push off spiritual thoughts. We keep saying, later, 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 later. And then later becomes never, and then it's just too late. I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to not push off do not push away spiritual conversations. Do not push away spiritual thoughts. Do not push away what Jesus is saying here. I want to encourage you to worry about the worst. Because Jesus asks you to worry about the worst. And to consider the best thing that can happen to you. Not later, but now. Do it now. Think about it for a moment. What is more pressing in your life then finding out if the worst thing that can happen to you can be avoided and the best thing that can happen to you can be enjoyed. What is a more pressing matter? What is higher on your task list? What is there actually a more important priority than knowing if the worst thing that can happen to you can be avoided and the best thing that can happen to you can be enjoyed? I don't think there is anything that takes priority over that. So friend, my encouragement to you is now. Now, friend, now, now is the time to consider the claims of Jesus Christ. Now is the time to be urgent about it. Not later. Now. Now is the time to see that Jesus Christ is the only one who has the power to save by his death and by his resurrection. I encourage you to consider this. And I encourage you to commit your life to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. 
Oh, Father, we thank you for the love that you shower upon us. Oh, Father, I thank you that you have taken away so much worry from us because the worst thing won't happen to us if we believe in your Son, Jesus Christ. The inevitable fate that we all face, that deep, dark monster that's coming for all of us can be avoided. We will not die in our sin. We will not die alone. We will not die in abandonment. Die being alone forever, for all of eternity, away from our Creator. We will not face that if we believe in your Son. Father, I thank you for that truth. And I pray that you would just place that truth so deeply inside of our hearts that as we go through the storms of this life and the pain of now, that you will show us how the story ends and you will make us feel how that story ends. That you will calm and quiet the storm in our heart with the peace of knowing our future is secure in Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray for those who don't yet know you. I pray, Father, that they would worry about this worst thing. And I don't say that that they would be paranoid. I don't say that that they would be emotionally destroyed or disturbed. I say it because I want so deeply for them to avoid it. Oh, Father, I want them to know you. This is the concern in which Christ gave these things. There is hope. If we believe in him, if we believe in his death and his resurrection, and Father, I pray that they would place their faith in you today. That they would place their faith in Jesus Christ as the only one who can save them through his death and his resurrection. I pray they give their life to you today. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. And I want you to know if you made that decision to follow Jesus Christ, We are so incredibly excited. We want to walk alongside with you. We want to see that faith just grow. And if you made the decision to believe, we want you to be baptized. So as Pastor Matt said, we've got that class coming up. I want you to take part in that. Go to valleybible.org. You'll see backslash uh, baptism. You'll see the baptism link there. Make sure you sign up for that class. Really, really want you to take that next step in your faith journey. Again, I look forward to seeing you next Sunday.